Hello and welcome to Setting the Stage, episode 19, John and Online. We are looking for more people to interview. So if you're a DM or you know a DM that might be interested in coming on the show, you can check out more about how to apply at www.gocorral.com slash STS. And without any further ado, let's get into the show. Uh, today I'm interviewing John, who was the Dungeon Master when I first started playing D&D, so it's really cool to have you on the show. Hi, John. Hi. Um, it's it's fun to be here. Um, you've interviewed some great GMs, so like I'm not in that caliber, so it's like, you know, nice that you interview me, that you uh, put me in that group. Oh, I, I have a lot of fun playing in your campaign, so it's, uh, I think you are a good DM. Um... So uh, we're, we'll go through the, the usual questions for you, even though I sort of know the answers to a few of these. Um, so uh, usually we ask the guests to talk about who they are outside of D&D. So how about you give a little introduction to yourself? Sure. Um, I'm a mostly retired techie. Um, in my career, I've done two things that people may have encountered. One was um, the draw or play rule for Magic the Gathering. And the other was improvements to Google search. So like if you do a search and it like gives you answers for a different word than when you typed in, that was probably my doing. Okay. What, what do you mean draw or play rule for, for Magic? So, so this is where um, the first person doesn't draw a card. So the second person is the one, who, the drawing doesn't start until the second person, third person goes. So in some sense, the first person starts in the middle of their turn. So our play group came up with this. I came up with this idea for our play group after first person one too often. And then one of us met the Magic the Gathering guy at the hackers convention and mentioned it. And then it got into the rules. It started being used. And then I knew someone who knew him and got confirmation. Yes, that was the path that got in there. Cool. I thought it was the, the mulligan rule that you'd thought up, not the... No, it was player draw. Okay. Yeah, I, I do remember that story now. Thank you for reminding me. Um, and Google, yes, I'm familiar with you doing a lot of different um, search stuff for that. Big part of what my understanding of you as an adult when I was a kid. <laughs> um, how did you start playing D&D? So I started later than most people. Um, I, a group at my work um, had a campaign going, and I joined in that. Mm -hmm. um, the campaign never actually made a lot of sense to me. Um, I started out with a ranger and ended up with a ranger who had wings and a cow's head. And I still don't quite understand why those things happened to him. Um, okay, so yeah. I, my campaign building was in some sense a reaction to that. I wanted a campaign I understood. Okay, yeah. That um, definitely feels more like a, a nonsense campaign for you to turn into a cow angel ranger. <laughs> and of course, this was like, you know, advanced D&D. &D. This was, you know, pre-second edition, pre-everything. Right, right. Um, yeah, we started off with second edition for our campaign. Yeah, I had to. So when I first made my campaign, um, it was first edition rules. I had to convert it to second edition to run for you guys. Okay. Um, yeah, I remember that you'd run it for uh, another group um, before us. Was that that was in first edition when you did that? That was still in first edition. Yeah, that was like okay. end of the eighties. Okay. Yeah. If I remember right, first and second were like the easiest to do conversions between. Only conversion I've done, so I don't know. Okay. Well, you, we changed to third edition for later on in ours. Oh, we did? Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. 
Like we started off in second, but it was only briefly, and then we changed to third. Oh, all right. I'll um, I'll take your word for that. Yeah, and third also wasn't that different from second, so it was a another somewhat easy conversion. But if I remember right, first and second were actually like basically compatible from what I've looked at for them. And of course, now I'm playing in your 4.5 edition game, which is totally different. Oh uh, yeah, that's that's a mess. Um, yeah, I feel like. First, second, third, and fifth edition, you all can sort of do like sort of a sliding conversion between them. Fifth is probably the hardest to do a conversion from third to, but yeah, fourth edition is just like, no, you can't really just do a one to one change. Especially since they added another like 10 levels to it. Um, yeah, so I guess you answered how you started DMing. Um, were you were you DMing for that same group that you were initially playing with at work? Uh, yeah, I, I did. Initially, I did just like a what I thought was a one-day campaign, which, uh, one-day um, dungeon, which turned into a turned out to be like a three-session dungeon. And then... Uh-huh. Yeah, the usual thing. I worked on my campaign while I was supposed to be writing my dissertation because that was way more interesting. Okay. Um, and, then, um, and then I picked up the group that I was originally playing with or some crowd of that people and that ran my uh they ran in my campaign then okay um and are any of those people do you still play with them for your, your epic power stuff no I don't okay I've lost contact with all of them all right yeah we went our separate ways that'll happen it's been a few decades <laughs> about four yes <laughs> um well uh you want to give us a like physical description of the world and a, a name for it? Uh, sure. It's called Olnap, and world is giving it more credit than it's due. It's yeah. a, um, a small part of things. So I'm not super creative. Um, and also, I had almost no information what a campaign was like, right? Because I only played this one campaign, which made no sense to me. So I basically saw it, a campaign as a place to put several dungeons. You know, I didn't, I didn't think much more beyond that, although you know, things happen. Um, so, um, but one thing that we do have around here is the Western headquarters of the U.S. Geological Survey, and they had a map room where you could go in and see every topo map they had for sale. And so I walked around the map room looking for maps with interesting topography. Um, it just, just imagine, like, stacks of shelves all an inch apart with, like, topo maps in each one mm-hmm. on display. And so the most interesting map I found was for the Olympic National Peninsula in the upper northwest corner of Washington State. And um, you've got this mountain, and you've got these valleys, and I think, I think oh, okay, the valleys can channel the party um, past my monsters. This, lots of interesting topography here. So I you know, spent two bucks or something like that on a map of Olympic National Park, um, which is where the name Olnap came from, sort of acronym for that. You can see I'm not especially creative. Okay. Uh, and then I just put the map down on the floor and um, there was already a town of Port Angeles on the map and I turned that into Angel's Point. Okay. And then um, I, and then I saw a, a hill kind of over somewhere by itself that became my town of Lone Hill and then the one more town of Boulder. Um, and I just sort of thought, okay, now what, you know, what's going to be these valleys? What, what kind of government structure will my towns have? Um, most of which didn't affect the campaign very much, but some parts did. 
So yes. it was great. I had a cartographically accurate map of the world, which became my DM screen. I glued it to some um, foam core. Um, and, um, you know, it all, all came for like two bucks. Cool. Yeah. That, that's pretty neat. I, I never tracked down what it was, but I guess I was looking for islands, not peninsulas when we were doing it initially. Right. You were all kind of the northern part of the peninsula. Um, and then, you know, I didn't really have, you know, your, your guests have talked about like the importance of a calendar. Um, I think I may have started keeping track of time for a while, but I'm not very good at that. And I kind of lost track. Um, there's... Yeah, I think my dad was the one that was actually doing that in our campaign, not you. Ah, that, that makes sense. Yes. <laughs> yes. He, he tried to bring me out of, out of my, uh, my ignorance in some places and, and succeeded to some extent. Um, so that was actually really helpful. Yeah, actually, yeah. So basically, I, what the campaign was, you know, your father, my father, and like five, nine or 10-year-old kids who started out kind of a little bit afraid, could they do this? And then two years later, we're a bunch of preteen rules lawyers, at which point I said, yeah. all right, you're, you're on your own now, boys. <laughs> yes, I do remember that. You were, you were done playing with us when we were all snarky uh, and talking back at you. Right. Um, so no Pantheon to speak of. It was just the standard, you know, D&D Pantheon, which was pretty bad at that point. Right. Um, and um, so mostly it was just a place to put, you know, a few dungeons and then a bunch of other kind of random, random things. Yeah. Um, okay. So I remember the, the three different cities, but I also remember there was like this part of what we were doing before we got to Onlap, where there was like the elven town that had been attacked by undead. Is that supposed to be like across the water from the Olympic Peninsula, like Victoria and that section of Washington? Or I don't remember. I guess that's that. Canada. There was, there was an undead attack on a town in Olnap. Maybe you're thinking of that. Oh, no. I, I, no, it wasn't undead. Sorry. It must have been, it was troglodytes. Oh, okay. That was that was actually also in Old Nap. There, oh. there were other lights outside of Boulder. Um, so yeah, the various things were happening. Um, the party sort of dealt with. So there was a there were troglodytes outside of Boulder, and um, the campaign dealt with them and made them very popular in Boulder. Um, and they all got a piece of the rock for that. Okay, I thought that was. So I thought we were somewhere else, and we like took a boat to Angel's Point and then walked to Boulder from there. You, you, so the entry, introduction to the campaign was you take a bolt to, Angel, to Angel's Point. Um, mm -hmm. And then at that point, um, you got hired to guard a caravan mm -hmm. um, to go over to Boulder, which is sort of a way to introduce you to the various parts of the world. Yeah, I remember that. I was also very proud of the treasure map I gave you in Boulder in, uh, when you first, the party first landed. Um, I don't like cliched things in campaigns like treasure maps. Um, so I had this guy come up and offer you a treasure map to Slift's treasure, um, this thief, and you forked over like a hundred gold for it. And then someone else came up and offered you a different treasure map to Slift's treasure. And then a third person offered you a treasure map to Slift's treasure. Um, All right. so I do remember <laughs> getting some fake treasure maps and then feeling yeah, like, granted. eh, whatever, it's just fake money I'm giving to these people anyways. <laughs> one, of them, one of them was like the one that Slift put in her chest to lead people to where the pyrohydra was. 
Yes, yes. It was your party, the first party. They were sure they were sure there must be some treasure there. And eventually they went back when they were higher level and managed to kill the higher head. But there was nothing there, nothing there but just, you know, a lure to uh, go, you know, to a nasty surprise for anybody who tried to sneak into Sliff's treasure chest. Yeah, I was disappointed. All that work and we just got a hydra meat. Okay, yeah, so we got we have a couple different towns. Um uh, we had Angel's Point and Boulder, obviously. You want to talk about Angel's Point first, I guess, because that was the, the first town we came to? Sure. Um, so, the, so I had a little bit of a history from the world to try to figure out kind of how things, why things were the way they were. Um, and the history was that it had been run by a bunch of good clerics. Sorry, a bunch of um, lawful clerics. Um, so the whole area had been run by lawful clerics, um, ranging from good to evil. And as you might imagine, they had some some disagreements, and there was a big fight, and they basically killed themselves. And the play, and so Olnap is sort of coming back from that. And so the towns are kind of a reflection of how it had been. So um, Angel's Point is lawful good and neutral good. So it's sort of got the good part and the lawful part. Boulder is um, good, lawful to chaotic. Um, so it's sort of the good side, the bad clerics lost. And then um, Lone Hill, the last town, um, was sort of chaotic good. Um, so that sort of set up um, a little bit. Of, I had a, a long history for, for um, Angel's Point, which you probably don't even remember. It's sort of the mighty run it, which were, were a bunch of fighters. Um, and the, um, the thieves are the bureaucrats. They're called the fingers of the mighty. And the head thief was the thumb of the mighty. So everybody's operating under the thumb of the mighty. Um, I'm guessing you never, never got that pun. Uh, I, I'm remembering a little bit of this now. So and all three cities are sort of facing the mountain from different directions. And there's valleys coming down from the mountain that are threats to the cities because the bad things live up by the mountain and sort of come down periodically. Right, yeah. Um, so, then, so then Boulder is... On the west side of this, um, they're the kind of good city run by clerics. Between them is where the former cleric castle of the, the castle that belonged to the place is. Um, and it's sort of this no man's land between the two. So it's sort of, it was sort of politically awkward for the party to be going into the old cleric castle on behalf of either city. And I remember poor brother Timothy. Um, you had a cleric in Boulder who um, was sort of in charge of managing the party, and the party right. would always promise not to let the other city find out what you were doing, and then you'd always forget, and then you'd come back, and Boulder Timothy would whack you with a mace of correction. Um, I thought it was Brother George. It may have been Brother George. I only know my, my, my wife Anne played them. And, um, yeah, I, I think Anne was playing Brother George, and maybe Brother Timothy was her scribe or something. I don't quite remember ah, the difference between okay, the two. Okay. That could well be. Um, but yeah, the party never remembered what agreements they made and was always always falling, falling afoul of it. Well, yeah, we made that agreement like three weeks ago. How are we right. supposed to remember it? Right. Since then, we've been running around and learned division. Uh. <laughs> And then the last town, the chaotic town, um, I, I thought I had a couple of interesting things in there. There was like, there was a banker who was lawful good. It's like, or 
it's like, cause you know, even in a chaotic town, you want your banker to be lawful. Right. Um, and then there was like a bunch of rangers who were kind of the, the protection for the town area. And since it's a chaotic town, they don't really have a tax system. So the rangers sort of set up little um, blockades at the entrance to town and they charged um, tolls to come in and out. And um, when the party arrived, the ranger asked them for 100 gold pieces a person to go into town. And, um, you know, from the raiders' point of view, they're, they're chaotic, right? The last, the last one they can get, they're happy with a couple of coppers. Um, but the party is all paying up. And your father says, I'm trying to figure out the economics of this. At which point, one of the characters said, all right, I'm only paying five gold. And they said, that's fine. Um, and then the, uh, the party ended up sort of becoming famous in town as the ones who actually paid full price to get in. <laughs> I think we actually kind of liked that town, but um, I think you you were a chaotic bunch. Yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, I think we like Angel's Point felt like these guys have a bunch of sticks up their butts. Let's leave. Boulder felt kind of nice, and Lone Hill felt. Um, when I remember, there just wasn't a lot of adventuring to do around there. Like Boulder was a better like home base for adventuring. Right, right. I mean, that's where the Sahakan threat was. That's near where the um, the undead threat was. Yeah, there's a lot of focus on the the cleric castle. That's right. The, um, yeah, the big one. So, you know, so I, I mean, like I say, I didn't put very much effort into the world, um, and it's go, and I had no no idea that you could do all this. Right. I mean, the this is pre World Wide Web. So the right. only way you can learn stuff is to go to cons or buy books. Um, yeah. So, um, and on the one hand, you know, so you, you couldn't like, you know, grab pictures off the web or whatever. On the other hand, the expectations were quite low, right? <laughs> yes. like Hand-drawn maps on, on a table. Um, in my current campaign, when I first started working on it, I had like a hand-drawn map. And one of my players said, oh, it's a crayon map. I'm like, well, it has colors. That's better than what I did last time. <laughs> slowly had I've slowly come into the into the into uh, you know higher production values, which are expected now quite reasonably. Yeah. There's so much stuff you can get for free for the, the battle maps if you're just okay with having the little watermark on it. Right. The right. Little, little ad for the map maker. I'm finding I'm now using about half free ones and half um, once I make an incarnate. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes you need that to get what you want. Yeah. I still have that whiteboard that we would play on, um, like <laughs> ready to go in a bag for whenever we have in-person play sessions, which obviously never happens anymore. But yeah, that's cool. Of course, the all the pens I used to draw on it are obviously are probably dry at this point, even though they have their caps on them. Right. Well, I think the like just dungeon placement and like filling up a dungeon is like I think that was pretty typical for when you were learning how to play. Like that's kind of what um, the original expectation was for first edition was that the players just go around to dungeons and. Um, spend a lot of their time just like interacting with the dungeon and not necessarily so much with the actual like world. Right. I think that's true. And your father helped help me get out of that, right? You know, we had the Boulder Town Crier, which would have noticed right. 
going on and there'd be news about what the party had done and the heroes of Boulder. The, they sort of they took credit for the party. Yes, um, I'm looking at the Boulder Town Crier and it's because um, my family had a newsletter back then too and it's very clearly done using the same software. <laughs> hey, I think your father was involved in the Boulder Town Crier. Yes. Yeah, 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 that was cool. Um, I remember that also, I, I think that was also part of like the homeschooling where we were writing stuff for the campaign and that became like a part of our curriculum was to just sort of okay i want to i need to write a page of some creative writing thing for this week so i'll write an article for the town crier ah that may have been that may have been and of course that let players get their viewpoint into things mm -hmm. um, my son played an elf played a dwarf and he was always writing anti-elf screeds yes yeah um and uh, yeah, uh, John is the father of Will, who was the um, the guest in the first episode, or co-host, I guess, for anyone trying to make that connection. Yeah, yeah, I think I think Ben came up with like a song or something because he was playing a bard at one point. Ah, I think that's right. Yeah, there was like whenever there was a festival, we'd all try to like come up with something creative to kind of draw attention. Right. And again, a festival is not something I planned at all. The first run of the campaign, there were no festivals anything like that. And again, your father pushed on, hey, there should be festivals. It's like it's a, a town run by clerics. How could there not be festivals? Which, like, in retrospect, made a whole lot of sense. And so, um, you know, those turned out to be actually something, something I think you guys really liked. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The festival. And... Yeah, definitely. I do remember that being fun. Um, so, yeah, I mean... Uh, I slowly got the idea of, okay, it doesn't all have to be in a dungeon. Um, but I'm still not great at that. Uh, yeah, okay. It was one of my other questions, because you have like a list of holidays that you sent here. So I was curious where that had come from. Was that like not in the first campaign? You, you made that up afterwards? It was all made up, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that and Brother George and um, um, a, bunch of, a bunch of that stuff was made up. Pretty much most of you know, the, the, all the dungeon stuff carried over, and the out of dungeon stuff was all pretty much um, made up on the fly. <laughs> That's cool. And I'm not good at improvising, so it's made up on the fly between sessions, right? Not during a session. Okay. Yeah, I'm saying that you basically just did a, a feast day for each of the different gods. Well, each of the different good and neutral gods, I suppose. Right. <laughs> Yeah, they may have been some other stuff. But I guess yeah, I guess your father was keeping track of time, so you knew when the feast day was coming up and you could have some some sort of celebration. Yeah. Pillsbury Day, patron god of bakers. <laughs> that was not like your father's doing. Uh. <laughs> I mean, that is one you know, one thing I find is that, you know, so I'm I really like doing some things and I'm good at some things and I'm bad at other things. Um and by kind of getting content from the players, it really helps kind of flesh out the parts of the campaign that I'm not good at making. Yeah. Yeah, no, I've, I remember doing that a bit too, but uh, it's been, uh, I don't know, I still, the guys still come up with some stuff, but yeah, it's it's not as frequent, I think. I don't know. I guess I, I don't have as good a recollection of how much was actually used back then for what we were doing. Right. I wanted to talk about like the um, 
of the differences between the two different campaigns that were took place on OnLap. Mm -hmm. um, so one that I remember was the uh, the cleric castle where we like came up with this ridiculous plan to deal with the the golem by um, you know you needed like a magic weapon to damage it and we right. didn't have any or we didn't have any good ones um, so I was like looking through the book and said hey a battering ram is a weapon that deals the most amount of damage why don't we turn a battering ram magical and then hit it with the battering ram this is just after the um, Return of the Jedi came out, where there was a scene where the two logs smashed the uh, Imperial Walker. And so that was your guy's idea. You ended up smashing it. Yeah, maybe for the remastered one, because it's obviously not for the original release. Whichever remastered one that was. Yeah, that's that's probably where I got the idea from. Right. Yeah, yeah. so we had to get the two logs and then the clay golem like saw the logs and wouldn't move forward between them. So then we had to create like a, a shade, like a little duck blind thing, but higher. So it couldn't see the logs, but I could still see, I think I was the one that was taunting it. So it would follow me. Um, and then that finally worked. <laughs> right. So what you, I don't think you ever knew until this moment is that I considered this to be a completely stupid bogus idea. And I said, all right, it's only going to work on a 20. And then you guys rolled a 20. <laughs> um, so let me give a little context for that. Um, I like to give parties challenges that I don't know how they're going to solve. Because it's fun for me, it's fun for them. And the, and the Golem was, was a challenge like that. Mm -hmm. The key thing is the party has to be able to like, get away if they can't win the first time. Um, and so the, um, the cleric castle, basically, as you went up floors, it got nasty or undead, and the top is this clay golem, which, you know, in the original rule was basically a monster that can only be fought by a high-level cleric, because it can only be hit by magical blood weapons. If it hits you, it, your damage can't be healed by anything short of a heal spell. Oh, um, right. I forgot about that part of it. So, it, 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 you know, there's, there's just no way you can, uh, at first blush, you could deal with this golem. But, but then also, golems in original rules had haste, so they could move really fast. I took the haste away, so you could run away from the golem. Um, so, you know, I thought, all right, well, you can, like, have it, chase, have it chase one party member around the castle while everyone else is looting the top floor. You know, there are various options for dealing with it. Um, but, yeah, both the parties found very different solutions, which I thought was, was funny, none of which was what I imagined. Um, so there was a... Quicksilver of enchanting weapons that I don't know if your party found, but the other party found it, where you put a drop of this mercury on a metal weapon and it becomes mad plus one for one hit. Um, and the party also had a lawful neutral cleric who can not only turn undead but also take over undead. Oh, that's the, that was that was the other party, that wasn't us. Right. And the castle had a bunch of skeletons outside protecting it. So the um so what they did is they gave each skeleton a mace, put the quicksilver enchanting weapons on it, and brought out the golem. Had the skeletons all attack the golem, and the golem is kind of like um, Sauron at the intersection of the rings. Where he's whacking out, you know, half a dozen skeletons at a swing, 
Um, but the skeletons are all beating on him with their plus one mace. And just about, like, about the last skeleton took the golem down. Um, and that's, that was how they did it. And I think it was your party first tried freezing the golem in water. You, had, you got this ice stuff that would freeze water. Um, one of the parties tried doing that. I forget whether it was yours or another one. Um, uh, that sounds familiar, but I don't think we did that with the golem. I thought that was a different monster. Ah, uh, okay. Um, I, I, I thought it was the golem because you concluded that it had magic resistance because the water didn't stay, didn't stay frozen. Um, but in fact, what it was is the ice only freezes for a limited amount of time. Uh, okay. Um, so then that, so then the, the, uh, <clears throat> the tree trunks were your fallback position. But yeah, I thought that, I thought that was a, a great example of a challenge for a party that I didn't know how they'd solve, but it felt pretty open-ended and people came up with like all sorts of cool, interesting solutions. Yeah. Yeah. I, I always felt like mostly what I'm doing with like encounter generation is like creating a puzzle that other people can solve. And it's sort of, it just has an open-ended solution. Like, it's not like, a, you know, a Sudoku where, like, you're going to go through this process to get to the answer. It's more just, yeah, okay, well, you'll you'll find a way there. Right. Right. Um, and actually, the other thing is, you know, I usually use the structure of my world to get the ideas because I'm not super creative. So I needed an explanation for how the cleric fight broke out. And basically, the evil clerics were making undead, and the good clerics didn't like that, so they made the golem. And then things are out of hand, and the golem killed a bunch of the undead and killed everybody else out, killed everybody else. And then, you know, neither of them trusted the other because they had these big weapons. Um, right. And so that's how the golem ends up, you know, fitting into the story. Um, okay, so that, that kind of makes sense for the, the skeletons to be fighting it then, I guess, because that's like what it was made for originally in some sense yeah okay cool cool so the you mentioned the piece of the rock that was like the little symbol of boulder because they had the the boulder right I, um yeah it's it named sort of for the the insurance company that has gibraltar as their symbol right uh i remember there also being a like special gems that were found all around the Olap that had some sort of connection. Right. So that was my pathetic excuse for an overall goal for the campaign. Um, when I was thinking of the campaign, it's like, all right, well, a campaign needs like a climax and some overall goal. And I said, all right, I didn't want it to constrain the alignment of the party members, um, which in retrospect, I should have said, look, you know, yeah, don't play an evil character, but I didn't do that. Um, so, um, I didn't. I didn't think of it right. I mean, you know, I had very little background in this stuff. So, so my idea is well, okay. There is the luck of Olnap, which has been shattered somehow or other, um, and its shattering also caused the clerics to fall on each other and all that. And so it shattered into these four pieces, which were these four gems, and trying to get put back together again. And the party's task is to get the four pieces and reassemble them. Um, and there's sort of one piece at each of the dungeons and one piece that the dragons got. Um, the problem is I didn't actually give the party much hints about what, what was going to happen when you put the pieces together, right? You got like 
some dreams. Oh, it'll be great when you put pieces together. So the party is working for this goal, but there really wasn't any fantasy behind it because you really didn't understand what you're trying to accomplish, what would happen when you put them together. Yeah. In some sense, I would say it was, I would say it was a failure. I needed to make it more concrete and I needed to also have it interact more with what's happening day to day to the party. Um, have more connections somehow, have, like, if you have a piece of this thing, things are going to happen to you because of it, or something like that. So overall, I would say, um, you know, it, it provided sort of a structure, but it was, um, you know, I'd, I'd try to think of something better if I redid that. I'd try really hard to think of something better. What, so the, when we put them together, that was, like, supposed to provide some sort of blessing to Olmap again? Right, right. Things are supposed to start working well again and all that. And as I recall, each party member got a permanent plus one on their attack rolls or a permanent plus one any one thing they wanted. That was kind of the, the reward for putting it all together. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. And then the campaign ended, so it was like, oh, what do we do with that? <laughs> yes. Right, and like, there was like a, a dragon that had one of the pieces, and I remember thinking, is the dragon the one behind the, the shattering of the gem or the luck? Right, and I never came up with a story of what was behind the shattering of the gem. Okay. Of the All right, well, uh, my dad designed campaigns the same way, where he would sort of just throw a, sort of a, a plot piece out there, but without any like idea of how he would resolve it. And, you know, the campaign didn't finish, so he didn't need to resolve it. And in retrospect, it would have been good to have some idea of how the campaign would follow on. Um, but again, when I was writing it, I had no notion of a long-running campaign. Uh, you know, whereas like the one I'm in now has been going for three years. And I'm struggling. All right, what could be the next thing? Yeah, I almost feel like it might make sense for you guys to to reset and test out the lower-level rules for that again. Oh, that would be an interesting idea. Um, but I've just just generated like a dozen sessions worth of content, so I don't want to hear that idea yet. Okay, well, I'll remind you in June. <laughs> <Very>. <laughs> or whatever. There was another thing I remember from, like, one of the first adventures was that there was, like, this, these ogres that had, like, were guarding a, a path to the dungeon we were going to. And we were too low level to deal with ogres. So there was a, a traveling salesman that went over to anyone that was going that way and would sell them like fake jewelry, oh. so you could throw it at the ogres to distract them. Oh, okay. So that that... Was the one day dungeon. Yes, that was the one day dungeon. Oh, okay. Before before old nap. Yes, Joe's jewels. Last costume jewelry before the pass. Um, okay. Yeah, that's the one I was thinking of. Yes. Yes. Um, and. I, Actually, I think a few parties ran through that, and one party actually did kill the ogres, um, and then they discovered their cave was just this huge mound of costume jewelry. <laughs> and in there was one actual piece of jewelry. <laughs> How would you be able to find it? <laughs> and, then, and then, of course, after that, Joe had been put out of business because there were no ogres anymore, so he was really mad at the party. <laughs> well, he's got all of his stock back if he wants it. Right, but no one's going to buy it now. Right, his whole business is making cheap-looking jewelry that could fool an ogre. That was another case. I mean, what I try to do is think, okay, you know, given the situation, what 
does it prompt what would make sense? It's like, all right, I'll put an ogre in the pass. Well, it's a problem, but ogres are dumb. So some entrepreneur is going to come along and deal with the fact, you know, exploit the fact that ogres are dumb to make a business for themselves. So in some sense, that you know, the ogres are good for him. He likes the ogres. Yeah, that's his that's his business model. I'm solving a problem. You know, my other another big source of ideas is just you know, I'll see something in the news or you know something will come up and it's like, oh, I can turn that into a monster. So, for example, the last thing you guys encountered was the um. The hopeful monsters. There were all these, all these kind of fish-like monsters that each had different abilities. Um, I, that sounds familiar. Yeah. At the very end, and that basically, my sister had mentioned to me that there are these bacteria that pick up little plasmids of DNA, little bits of DNA, and it might be good for it. And so they get some new ability, and it might be useful. And so I thought, okay, I'll turn that into monsters. So I had these fish monsters um, that would go and. Um, you know, they had various capabilities, you know, each one had different capabilities, and the one that had the, had the, the gem was like, so there's a source of water, and the water had something in it that the monsters liked, and so the biggest guy was at the spring, and everyone else is, is just a monster-eat-monster monster world. Um, and one of the monsters got the ability to speak, and so yes, a party. And then whenever the party killed a batch of monsters, their allies would go in and eat them. Um, and become stronger. And both parties got progressively more nervous about their allies because their allies are getting stronger and stronger. And it's like, what's going to happen when we finally take them on? Take on the big guy. You know, will they actually become our enemies or not? I forget how we resolved that. I think we ended up talking to them and leaving them alone. Your allies, I think. But, but you ended up killing the big guy. I think he wasn't going to give up that gym. Yeah. And by and large, your allies mostly just sort of said, you know, you go fight them, we'll eat them. <laughs> let that party do us the work. Yeah, we were, we were fine to do that. Um, but that was, that was I, th I thought that was fun because it was an excuse then to give you, you know, every monster had a different challenge. Um, and they were all custom monsters. You didn't really know what to expect with the next monster you, you encountered or next yeah. monsters. Yeah, I remember, I remember we were like, the our friends like took little bites of us to get like our abilities or something. Right. So I think, I think the friends initially said, you bite us, we bite you, friends. Um, because the way it worked, the way the monsters worked is they, they bit somebody, they could get their DNA, and then basically for every level of monster you were, you got to express one more new attribute. So you sort of collect this bunch of attributes that you might express, then when you, you know, go up a level by eating up your fellow monsters, um, you can express one more attribute. So they're always like trading bites to get a larger collection of attributes to choose from. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that was a really interesting one. I liked that. That was the last part to go in. Yes, that was... I forget if that was last or if it, the dragon was last, but... The dragon was one instance where actually the world reacted to you. So um, in the Dwarven mine, talk about a cliche, um, there were all these different kinds of evil monsters that had been part of taking out the dwarves. And, and actually, one thing, they, they were actually both chaotic. Some were chaotic and some were lawful. Uh -huh. And they were not allies with each other at all. So the party could have gone in and allied with some of the monsters to fight the other monsters. But neither party tried it, you know, either run through. And I never gave anybody any hints that they should try to do this, right? Which in retrospect, I should have given some hints. I should have at least have a monster say, hey, look, you know, I, I saw you beat up on the orcs. So you'd probably want to beat up on these guys too, because they're chaotic like the orcs, right? I which way the orcs were in first edition. It's changed a few times. Um, mm -hmm. But I never gave the party a hint that they could actually ally with some of the monsters. 
Um, but I wanted, I wanted to figure out how do these orcs survive in a mine with lots of much worse monsters than orcs? Um, and so the solution was give them a powerful weapon. But then it has to be a weapon that's not going to be too powerful in the party's hand. So the answer was um, cruise arrows, an arrow that hits as if it was fired by a level 10 enemy. So as you level up, the, level, the, the arrow gets, is progressively less valuable to you because it, it isn't a oh. It's just based on the enemy. Okay. Because see, the orcs' problem is they can't hit anything. But now suddenly these orcs can hit something. And they had a ring of fire resistance. So, had, so, you basically, so the orcs don't like to shoot their arrows because they have a limited supply. But if they're threatened, they will shoot them. And the other monsters know that, so they'll stay away from the orcs. So I worked really hard making the world consistent. And I think a lot of it you guys didn't notice, but some of it I think you did. Anyway, so you yeah. have orc in a pool of in a pool of flames with this fire resistance ring shooting at the party. And so you've got like a second or third level party at that point running away from a small band of orcs because these arrows are hitting. <laughs> um, so you had to come, so I have another challenge. I didn't know how you'd, how you'd handle it. I figured how you handled the orcs. I think you surprised them or something and managed to, managed to deal with them. And you, I think we, I remember us getting a bunch of shields for that so that we had like a oh. big shield wall and was just advancing slowly so the arrows weren't doing any good. I think that's right, yeah. So again, you came with a, with a uh, unique solution to a problem that I didn't know how you'd solve. So you got the orc and you sold the ring because you didn't want the ring of fire resistance. But then you ended up getting strafed by the dragon, who was an, a, a white dragon, so, you know, ice weapon, a cold weapon, and you hit back with fire and almost killed the poor thing. So the dragon bought the ring that you sold. <laughs> so that next time, it was much, it was much studlier. It sent it set an orc that it kind of knew off to buy this ring. A little, little chain of buying stuff. Long chain of yeah. You 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 sold the ring back in Lone Hill, and there was a little bit of like half orcs could go between Lone Hill and the orc area. Right. He learns his rings for sale. He knows the dragon would love a ring of fire resistance, and poof, my dragon was a lot because because you almost killed my dragon even out of his lair. So I had to come to help my poor dragon out, and something. Oh, you know, the party provides. Man, we should have kept that ring and throw it on Conan so he could get he could get fireballed. Right. I do remember the Dwarven Mine, because that's where we got the group name, the Troll Slayers. Ah. I forgot that name. Yeah. We kinda kinda stuck with it too. It's still like the name of one of our Discord servers. Like the one we're doing now is Epic Power, but the other one that you're not in is Troll, Troll Slayers. Yeah. yeah. So one of the things they did in the mine, which neither party got onto, was it's like, okay, you know, dwarves are stout guys. They don't care about stairs. So there were multiple levels in the mine, like, I don't know, about eight levels or something. Um, and different regions weren't restricted to one level. It was like maybe three or four floors in one geographic sub part of the mine. Be one, you know, would be like where the rulers were or where the smiths were or where something else was so um the coherence wasn't horizontal it was vertical or you know, it was kind of spherical um uh -huh. but both parties that ran through the dungeon assumed that okay we just go down top to bottom when in fact there was no top to bottom structure at all so i don't know if there was a way i could have given more hints about that maybe slifts 
notes about the mines could have, because you eventually got a hold of that, could have, indi- could have said something about that. Um, I never quite imagined that no one would um, realize that, um, you know, level didn't matter. But I think it's just so ingrained in players that it's all about physical level that no one, no one guessed that. I think a harder part for that is that so much of the like original use of the mine was irrelevant to what it, how it was occupied when we got there, because it was sort of just like a bunch of empty rooms that occasionally had monsters in them. Right. Maybe it's just like the actual organization wasn't important. It was just like here we gotta kill all these monsters, and that's you know, true. It, it doesn't matter if we're killing them in a a bedroom or a a mine, right? A tunnel, <laughs> and the monsters themselves were somewhat organized vertically as well. Um, but of course, whenever you attack at one level, they all come up from the other other levels. So, from your perspective, you you got them all at one level. Mm, okay. And of course, this was all done with graph paper. Yes, yes, I do remember a lot of graph paper from back then when I was making my own stuff too. Um, the cleric um, castle was round because I found some polar graph paper. Oh. <laughs> okay. Uh, that's good. That's good. Yeah, that's stuff that's used for um like uh temperature or seismic reports that like round like yeah, has like the little like uh record player stylus that goes on it. Ah. I think that's what it's used for. Those are cylindrical, I think mostly. But yeah. Something like that. Again, the, the bookstores at colleges would have all these different kind of graph paper. And I kind of walked down the aisle and said, this looks like fun graph paper. I'll put this in my dungeon. <laughs> so, you know, wherever, wherever you can get the ideas from. Um, yeah. You know, now I get, you know, I mean, in my current campaign, I have lots of stuff that you guys put in the first one of the campaign. Um. I, a whole arc that came out of one character's backstory, um, a challenge coming from the upcoming arc that was another character's backstory. Uh, you know, it's it's actually, you know, if if you ever do get to run multiple characters through the same campaign, um, I think the second run through can be a lot better because you get a lot from the first run through. I didn't yeah. do that in the Olnap campaign, right? I mean, what happened in the Olnap campaign is I ran it for some people, got it to its end. Started in the GURPS campaign. Then my son was born and he was not a sleeper. And I basically said, All right, I can't deal with the and my son at the same time. Yeah, this baby's too hard. So I quit. And only got back to it when he and you guys were 10. It's like, Oh, okay. We're nine, I think. Um, right. Yeah. He's, he's sleeping through the night now. I think I can do this again. <laughs> oh, it took 10 years. Yeah. Whereas, I mean, you, you know, either you're a much better parent than I am or you have much much sleepier kids than I had because you kept going right through parenthood, quite depressed. I think I just needed less sleep. <laughs> um, I was also curious about the the conial material that you'd created for um ah for the dwarven mines. Yeah. Um. Again, it's basically mithril, right? I I wanted there to be something. You know, it's like. You got a mine, it has to, I mean, you know, it's this complete ripoff from Lord of the Rings. You got a dwarven mine, which makes some magical, some, some special mineral material. Um, and I thought, okay, fine. Um, I'll just call it Coneal. And um, it was very hard to smelt 
they had like a, ch- a special magic chain to get get their smelters hot enough. Um, mm-hmm. And um, I think in in the original campaign, I forget what it made weapons better in some way. And by second or third edition, there was this notion of cleave, which wasn't in the original edition rules. So it's all, all right. Coniel gives you weapons that cleave. I thought what Coniel did for weapons was it made them uh, keen. Oh, keen, yes, keen, keen, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, where it's uh, doubled the chance that you would get a critical hit. Right. Right. Yes. Yeah. I think I think maybe before it gave you gave you cleave as a ability or something like that I forget now. But yeah, cleave was the ability where like when you kill an enemy, you get to make another attack against someone else who's nearby. Right. Um. So yeah, I. Um. In some sense, it's it's you know really incredibly derivative. Um, I'm a little bit ashamed of it. Um, but well, I mean, you could just have called it Mithril. I was curious why you went for a different name. That's true. I went that far at least. Yeah, like we have, I've got Mithril in my campaign, and I'm not. I, don't, <laughs> I have a the Mithril mine that's uh, overrun by Dark Elves, which is actually just a full-on module that I just plopped into my campaign world. <laughs> um, that. I unfortunately, stupidly, um, like the, for this one, the party was going to, had some person that was going to take them to the mine to take care of it, and that person died on the way there. They didn't know where they were going, <laughs> so wow. I never got to use that adventure. So in the in the first campaign, the one with the ogres of the costume jewelry, the, that one day, that short um, duration dungeon, um. I had a orc lair that was an, an abandoned mine. And you guys never visited it. So I moved that into, um, and, and I, th- I think no, no time I ran it did it get visited. So I moved that into Olnap. Um, and then I moved it again in another campaign. Um, so I made my own little module because it was like, everyone needs an orc lair. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so it's like, yeah. The only part of it I was really proud of was that there's an Otiug character, I feel like I pronounced it, a thing that sort of like eats trash and garbage and stuff. Yeah, a little mouth with four tentacles. Right. So it's like, okay, well, that's where the orcs are going to put all their trash. Right? They've got a, a room with an Otiug and they just feed it trash. No need yeah. to take it out or anything like that. Yeah, it's a little, little trash compactor black hole thing. Yep. So it made perfect sense in context. And no one ever encountered it because no one ever went in the mine <laughs> that module. Ah, uh, yeah, there are all these like old like dungeon ecology monsters like the Otyog and Carrion Crawler, which was just like yep, basically a caterpillar that ate garbage. Um, to try and like make the the dungeon make sense as a place that people could live. Ah, I never thought of them that way. Yeah, because you know, like something that lives somewhere needs like food, water, and a place to get rid of their garbage. Right. Um, and theoretically something to do as well, but usually that involves just leaving the dungeon. Um, yeah, I remember trying to keep that in mind whenever I was designing dungeons. Um, and I, I guess I still am designing dungeons. It's just most of the stuff you guys are doing now is actually outside for the the current campaign. Right. Um, 
but yeah, everyone needs food, water, uh, trash, and something to do. Right. I made one custom monster for that dungeon, the Fearsome Ferrite. Uh, uh -huh. This was the monster that um, is basically a ball of magnetic mud, which could shoot pieces of itself at you, but didn't like you because it was costing itself. But it had a, it had a big magnetic field, which would grab onto um, anybody who was armored. Grab their armor. So it's sort of like a, a wimpy version of a rust monster. Oh, this sounds familiar. Um, it was like in the bottom of the dungeon. It sort of moved, it moved in or something like that. And both parties sort of adopted it. Both run-throughs, the characters thought it was sort of cute. So as I recall, one run-through, um, the party put a crucible upside down on top of it so it couldn't go anywhere. And that way they could go through the bottom of the dungeon. And you didn't actually need, even need to go through the bottom of the dungeon, so it was fine. I forget which party did that, but both parties thought it was kind of cute, even though I named it the Fearsome Ferrite. Um, I'm never quite sure why they thought that. Um, but maybe because it just wasn't a standard monster, and it, wasn't, it was pretty easy to, to, to avoid. Um, yeah. I think the party that put the crucible on top of it eventually took the crucible off because they felt kind of sorry for it. Uh, I'm not, I don't remember what we did for it. Do you remember finding a a video of some like uh like silly putty, but it was like ferromagnetic and more liquid than that? Oh, like uh, um, was the thixotropic stuff, cornstarch and water, but with and not oobleck, but yeah, something like that, where it was made of a magnetic slurry, so you could put a magnet around next to it, and it would like eat the magnet. <laughs> um, and I thought that I can't remember sending that to you and saying, "Hey, this is just like that um, that monster." Ah, that was a long time ago, though. <laughs> right, right. Well, I'm still, I'm still like, um, I think you and I now are both going for undersea worms. There are some really nasty undersea worms that turn into wonderful monsters. Yes, I am thinking of doing a, a adventure that's based off of um, trying to uh, get some treasure from Atlantis ah. for a, a short, um, instead of a big campaign, just like one adventure. Um, and yeah, having a, having some cool undersea worms would be good for that. Yeah, some nudibranchs. Um... There are just all sorts of... Um, I don't know if you can put the decapitating fly in there somehow. Decapitating fly? So these um, lay an egg on an ant's neck, and the maggot goes into the ant's like thorax or something and eats away, and then finally it pupates in the ant's head, and the head falls off, and then the fly falls <laughs> out. Um, it's quite horrible. And I believe it's leafcutter ants have like large workers that guard the um, the runways where the minor workers bring leaves back. And there's a super minor worker that goes on the back of each major worker to protect it from the flies. Hmm. And then, of course, there's the mushrooms that take people over. Um, yes, that are all in you know in the Last of Us and everything like that. Right, right. Um, but yeah, I mean. I, yeah, worms, insects have all sorts of horrible ways they can die. But yeah, there are all these obscure branches of, of animals that, you know, you think like there's the vertebrates and there's the annelid worms and a few other, but there's also these kind of very rare, 
you know, the whole file of, of animals that have only a few species in them that have all sorts of really horrible lifestyles. Yeah, I remember the the planaria being an interesting one that I, I actually designed a monster for third edition for where it's like a, a nasty worm, but it, it in like in reality it's like one inch long or something. So it's like, you know, you just squish it, but um when you size it up and say it's like twenty feet long, it's terrifying. Um, right. and if you cut it in half, then it, you just have basically you just have two planarias now. Right. Um, so I came up with this whole rule system for like you know, you kill it now you just have two smaller ones that are um because you you need killing it it's just cutting it in half so now you have two smaller ones that you have to deal with and then you kill those and then you have two even smaller ones you have to deal with. <laughs> right. Well, there's a thing called a land planary. I think I emailed you about it after I actually saw one on the sidewalk. They're kind of like yeah about earthworm size, but their head kind of flares out. Uh-huh. And they're nasty predators. Yeah, yeah, that's where I got the idea from. Was from you sending that email? Ah, yes. Yeah, it looked. Uh, yeah, imagine. Um, for my current campaign, now. my main monster creativity was. Um, uh, I decided to have monsters that could learn new body forms, so almost like Lamarckian evolution, which okay there is actually some of so. Um, you know, so it starts out like a sea urchin, and then it visits its um, it visits other sea urchins who've learned to do different things, and it will it copies one of those and gets whatever you know appendages or whatever that thing had, and then if it really succeeds, it'll have a little bit better version of those appendices appendages, which then someone else can come along and learn from it. So you end up with these things that are all genetically roughly identical, but in form they're all very different, and they're evolving very fast because they can essentially evolve via um, culture rather than via genetics. Right, yeah. Um, um, and that turned out actually to be pretty fun. So, um, you know, the, the party's facing lots and lots of different kinds of monsters. Yeah. Are you still on the urchin adventure or are you somewhere else at this point? No, that, that ended. I'm now on a adventure based on a one-day um, one of a run of... Um, my GURPS campaign, um, I had bought, so I'm running a fantasy campaign in GURPS, but I bought GURPS space just for fun. Uh-huh. And um, I thought, all right, how can I put a day worth of GURPS space in my fantasy campaign? And so I decided, all right, these space aliens have landed and they don't understand about magic. They understand about technology, about true knowledge. Um, and they're basically trying to take over the world and persuade people that magic is dumb. And they said, they set up a, you know, class, classrooms to, you know, stop people from being all, all the superstitious belief in magic. Um, and they're overall a threat to the world. Um, and so the, um, the party comes up and casts an earthquake spell. It just demolishes and just kills them all. And one week after that session, the 89 earthquake hit around here. Um, and... And, and all the players just sort of felt sort of bad about what they'd done to the monsters. The next session, everyone was kind of sheepish. Wow, we cast an earthquake. That was really, really bad. Because everyone was really affected by the earthquake here. Mm-hmm. For a week when you greeted somebody, you didn't say hi. You'd said, where were you in the earthquake? Ah, uh, right. 
Um, so I've now expanded that to um, the aliens are actually how you originally got people on this world. And this is the third, um, the third invasion. The first invasion, so they have to go through a black hole and there's temporal distortion. So you only send something like every few thousand years. So the first one lands, but the technology breaks. So you get some humans, but really no technology. The second one lands and the technology works. Um, and so this isn't, isn't going to be broadcast for a few months, right? <laughs> I don't know uh, guys to find out. Yeah, about. not until something like June. So Excellent. you're good. Excellent. So the second one, they, they get the technology, but they don't understand about magic. And so um, a bunch of mages, like including elves and people like that, basically take them out before they get much technology going. Now the third one has landed. Um, and meanwhile, the, the, um, there was a trader for the second batch and a, a defector. And so they have left a cache of high-tech weapons to help take out these guys. Um, yeah. So the party is going to go from, like, fireballs to, um, you know, handheld uh, shoulder-mounted missiles um, with um, psychic targeting. Um, and um, they'll be fighting a guy in an exosuit. Um, and meanwhile, the alien's uranium mine has spawned a Godzilla, which they'll have to go after. Um, but initially, they're... Um, just defending a town that the aliens have sort of got some allies to try to take over. Um, so this was, a, this was just a combination of, um, you know, expanding out the one-day thing and reading the uh, module that you suggested, um, The Red Hand, which is a fantastic resource. Um, and it's, I think that was Jamie that suggested that one. Uh, okay, it's hilarious to read. It's really well written. And, you know, I'm not using any of it literally, but it was just a wonderful source of ideas. I, I yeah, I've part- heard that as a very good um, adventure series. Have you thought about doing anything related to, like, taking from the expedition to the Barrier Peaks? Barrier Peaks? Okay, you haven't heard of that adventure. Yeah. Um, okay, so, like, it's one of the more famous uh, module adventures that Gary Gygax made. Uh, it's about a, um, uh, a UFO that, like, crash lands in you know, your D&D world um, up at the barrier peaks. So then, you know, people go up to, to find out what's going on up there because there was like a shooting star that hit there. And then you find out that it's actually like all of the, the aliens died, but now there's all these like weird mutant monsters that are coming out and the robots that were working there that are defending it. Um, you have to like work your way through the UFO, finding like different uh key cards to move forward into the rest of the dungeon off of the, the dead aliens and then you get to take like their, their laser pistols and use them. Oh wow. I, I had never heard of this. Yeah, um it's oh. uh, it's considered to be one of the like best D D adventures. <laughs> sounds very cool. Um yeah it sounds very similar like like what I'm doing except that um in in my case the Aliens survived, and they're trying to take over the world. But they have a very small technology base because you can only take a small amount of mass through the wormhole. So their goal is, you know, they've got a refi- a, a power, a, a, you know, a, a power reactor, a refiner, and a synthesizer, a, fa- a fabricator. And they need to get enough resources that they can start, you know, doing a chain reaction of replicating those things to get more and more tech. 
you know, instances of their tech going. Um, and they're, they're, you know, in the process of taking over two regions to be able to do this. Um, so there's a, it's mostly, a lot of it is just political. Um, and the party's going to have to ally with some, or may want to ally with some kind of unsavory types because they need everybody to gather, you know, to, to get together to fight off these guys. So they're going to, um, you know, probably try to get the necromancers on their side. But the necromancers are, are annoyed because their, um, uh, what's, what's their, their phylactery has been taken by the town. So it's like, all right, the necromancers will join the party if the party steals their phylacteries back from the town. <laughs> so um, that's cool. You know, just trying to uh, put a little more, a little more structure on, and then there's some collaborators, and one one um, empire you you move up one one area you you move up in government when you're um, the guy ahead of you um, is killed, kind of like the evil Spock Star Trek ep- um, series episode, and so um, the the aliens have a guy with a nerve gas droplet gun in a high-tech camouflage suit who makes the perfect assassin. So he basically makes offers to people in that government, says, hey, look, agree to work for us, and your boss will be out of the way. Um, so it turns out that that structure is highly vulnerable to the, um, to the aliens. Um, I made the structure first, but it's like, oh, that makes lots of sense. Yeah. Uh, did you, I mean, you, you talked about like bringing in things from previous campaigns that you've done. Have you brought anything into your current campaign from OLAP? Um, I didn't bring anything in from OLAP, but I brought something in from the GURPS campaign. Um, the Audrey 2 ring. Um, so this, this was after watching Little Shop of Horrors with the... Yep, horrible. I got the reference there. Um, and so the Audrey 2 ring the D&D version of it, it doubles your um, experience point accumulation. So it's like super fantastic. But mm-hmm. all the experience is actually going into the ring. So if you ever take the ring off, you go back to the experience you had when you first put it on. Oof. Um, right. I mean, which, which I thought was, it's a fair kind of curse because you've been getting double the XP, right? You've been lording it over your whole party. And now you're like back where you started. Um, um, does it, could you like move it around within the party? Once you take it off, you lose that. You lose all the XP. Once the character takes it off, they're stuck with it. They'll be taken off, but they lose all the XP they've gained. And the ring. I mean, is, is it is it like in the ring? Could you like I gain double and then I give it to the wizard no. and now he's the level no, no. thirty the wizard or something? Gave it, and then the next person starts getting their their accumulation goes up when they put it on. Okay. It only you only get benefit from holding it, but it's only a temporary benefit. Um, and then the all ring. Right is going to start, like, demanding that you do stuff you don't want to do, like, you know, feed other magic items or do stuff or whatever. So it, the idea is eventually you're going to, um, you know, you're going to be forced to take this ring off, pretty much. Yeah. Feed um, me, Seymour. Yes. Yes. Um, so that's another case, you know, you know, I'm not particularly creative, but hey, um, you see Little Shop of Horrors, ah, I can do that in a monster. Uh, yeah. So the, um, so my current, ca- so the, um, in the original campaign, the party got really skeptical, and there was one player who had a strange, a sort of weird character who could break things with their sound, with sound, and just broke the ring and pissed off the, the character who had it. 
but it was actually, turns out, no. So the point never found out what it thing actually did. And then in my current campaign, I think you guys encountered it. This was the ring that the mage had, it wasn't using, which is, should be a, you know, red flag that, wait, why isn't this mage using this magic ring? Um, that um, gave you um, experience points faster, but you ended up being um, basically a slave to um, the Lick who was trying to take over the world, the Rook. Ah, uh, okay. Um, so that got moved over there. In some sense, the, um, there was the abandoned mind that the wizard was in, which is in some sense a reincarnation of that original orc mind from way back uh, first scenario. Gotta have that. Pretty much the same. Looks pretty much the same inside. You know, I, I just kept putting it in there until someone went in. Yep. My first adventure that I did after we left uh, your auspices was also a orc mine. Yep. Crystal mine, but uh, still. Uh, yep. I mean, you know, you got to be, you know, at least 80% cliches because you're just not creative enough to do anything else all the time unless you're really good at it. But the 20% can be really fun. I think what they the players did was they waited for like the orcs to leave so they could go into the cave, see what was going on, and they killed all their children that they had been left behind. All the orcs were out, scared the orcs when they came back so that they could like leave. <laughs> it was a it was a weird adventure. Um, we I think we went through all my usual my usual beats. Um, is there anything else you wanted to to add or wish I'd asked you? Um. I don't think so. I think I think the overall point is, you know, do what you enjoy and are good at and find crutches for the rest. Yeah. It yeah. works. Yeah, you're in your um I suppose that we we as the group are your crutches at this point because uh, you're asking us questions yeah. all the time about what yes. to put yeah. in. And and I mean, yeah, I, I always ask you guys questions and then some of your answers are great and I just put them in right away. And some of your answers suck. And I just quietly ignore them because I want to keep the great answers coming. Oh, you didn't want to use the... What was that stupid one I gave you? I forget. I try to figure those as fast as I can. Go into an empty room and except for a table and a cup filled with black liquid and the cup has a note on it that says, Consume me. And the liquid in the cup is a virulent poison and the solution is actually to eat the paper note. Yes, yes. I don't like puzzles like that. Um, um, that can't was, imagine uh, why <laughs> now the truth is out no it's it's a terrible puzzle it's just a joke well thank you Isaac. yeah thank you for for coming on the show john um we i think we should have to have you on here again to talk more about um epic power and hoser but um i feel like oh, that's a yes and actually whole separate thing so i i have been working for the past like five years on a different rule system that makes more sense to me, I think, than D&D does. Um, and if anybody's interested, they can email epicpower at johnlamping.com and I'll send them a link and they can see what they think. Yeah, and that's uh, the John Lamping is with a H. Uh, and that'll go in the episode notes too. And obviously the episode title will also have John spelled correctly. So we'll we'll get it off of that. Uh, yes, yes, I would like to have you back to talk more about Epic Power and the the setting for it as well. But yeah, it's a whole. That would be great. Um, 
Yeah, but uh, real quick, the the main mechanic of epic power, just to entice people to go look at the rules if they're interested, is um, having much more of a true bell curve to how you have uh, roles for um, your skills. So it's much more GURPS-like, because GURPS has like the 3D6 system for rolling for your skills, so you're often more just going to hit that middle. And your um, custom dice are going to have like a, a middling range much more often, even though they can reach something at the far ends of the bell curve. Right. So usually you get like minus three to plus three, but, you know, we've seen like 15s and 16s. So Woof. an orc has a chance. It's also very nice that basically two monsters, if they have a small chance of hit hitting, you can just roll once and add two to the roll. So I'm playing now, you know, groups of 10, just give them a plus six, roll once, it works fine. And the other part of the mechanic is that um, your hit points don't go up with level. What goes up with level is epic power, which is something which you can spend so much of every turn to you know, avoid a hit, to increase your chance of a hit, um, to do various feats. Um, and there are no character classes. You just assemble whatever you want out of a bunch of pieces. Um, so generally, yeah. people want new things. It's been like one or two pages of new feats to you know, do what's special about that class and everything else you can hear from the rest of the rules. That's the goal. Yep. Yeah. So it's it's very GURPS like, but um I would say there's less uh maybe less choice paralysis at this point, because you're still at the initial like building stages for the system. Um and because you're designing it with like a fantasy bent, it's a bit more yeah like focused in what's going on with it. But uh, yeah, that'll have to, to wait for a more in-depth discussion another time. Very but good. Um, yeah, thanks for coming on the podcast, John. It was good having you here. You're welcome. <laughs>